This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Today on the show, women in Vanuatu celebrate the election of the country's first female MP in more than a decade. I probably jumped a little bit. I was I was very, very excited. Concerns surround mining and gas projects in one PNG community with fears they may push back women's development there. We haven't seen the environmental assessment, the impact assessment statement, because they haven't given it to us. They haven't even told us, even if they told us, the documents are in English and none of us understand the English language. And some young people in Papua New Guinea are turning to crime after an unemployment crisis takes hold. People like use money and pay First, though, the Australian government this week unveiled its budget with a boost in aid to the Pacific. Ahead of this year's elections, Labor had pledged more than half a billion dollars over the coming years to the Pacific. It has now almost doubled that promise to around $900 million. While the increase has been welcomed, activists say it doesn't go far enough to fight the biggest threat in the region, climate change. Dubrovka Volodar with this report. The Australian government delivered its budget with a commitment to boosting soft power in the region, Treasurer Jim Chalmers. And after nearly a decade of neglect and disrespect, we are restoring our role as a diligent and dependable partner and friend to our Pacific neighbours for a stable peaceful and more prosperous region. The past few years have not been easy ones for the Pacific, with COVID-19, border closures and natural disasters hitting the region. The Treasurer promised funding for the Pacific, marking Australia's hold as the biggest aid donor to the region. This is a very significant budget. There is a big increase for the Pacific of $900 million over four years, taking the total to $1.9 billion, which is a new high for Australian aid to the Pacific. Mark Purcell is the CEO of the Australian Council for International Development, the country's umbrella group for NGOs. Because it's driven in part by the need, uh, certainly there are huge needs uh, post-pandemic or, you know, the pandemic is still with us, but the economic impacts have hit Pacific Island countries very hard and people's livelihoods. A lot of the measures of the previous government were temporary COVID measures, but essentially the funding uh, that was once temporary has now been made permanent in this Labor budget, its first budget but some specifics remain unclear. They don't actually know what they're spending on yet exactly. The, the programs are either in design or they're, they're going to have to design them from the ground up. Dr Stephen House is the head of the Development Policy Centre, a think tank for international development at the Australian National University. And that's a significant increase, but that said, it's not enough actually to keep aid in line with inflation or in line with the growth uh, of the economy. So I think overall, uh, if you're a supporter of foreign aid, you'll still be disappointed by this budget. Foreign Minister Penny Wong said last week that the budget commitments would be a major step towards the goal of making Australia stronger and more influential in the world. Dr Howes again. That's what's really behind the bipartisan consensus for aid to the Pacific because I think both sides see aid as a, as a valuable tool 
in that geopolitical competition with China. And so now to sort of cut aid to the Pacific or not to increase aid to the Pacific is seen as being weak on China and uh, no party wants to have that reputation. But Dr. House believe it won't necessarily stem China's influence in the region. Just because we're giving more aid uh, doesn't mean that um, these countries are going to accept less aid from China. So I think it would definitely be a mistake to sort of hold our aid program hostage uh, to the Pacific. And Mark Purcell has a similar view. This budget is very clever because of the, the geostrategic anxiety in the policy establishment in Australia increasing aid to the Pacific, it's, it's going to be hard to question or to challenge uh, in the current context. Uh, so it increases the aid program. It puts measures that were previously temporary under the previous government. Effectively, it takes those funds and makes them uh, permanent. That bolsters the overall aid program. While welcoming the aid spending, some groups call for more action. The environmental group Greenpeace says Australia's budget is failing to address the Pacific's main existential threat, climate change. It's most welcome, but the climate crisis in the Pacific is far beyond aid. We need to ask the government of Australia to commit to loss and damage and commit to loss and damage facility at COP27. Sipesa Rasili is with the environmental organization Greenpeace based in Suva in Fiji. So the facility should help this, not only conversations, but support to the communities. Next to its aid spending, the government is also investing in other Pacific initiatives. More than $147 million will go towards advancing Pacific security. It will include Australian police deployment to Solomon Islands after the riots last year, upgraded aerial surveillance and training for defense and security forces. It also includes another $500 million over the next decade for Pacific countries to borrow for infrastructure projects. Australia has also pledged to expand the ABC's content and transmission to the Pacific with $32 million due to media freedom concerns. I think more funding for the ABC is good, but my understanding is it's not through the aid program. And I think that's also a good thing. I think it's important. And the government is sticking to its election promise and has included the creation of the new Pacific Engagement Visa, an initiative that will pave the way to permanent migration for 3,000 people from the Pacific. Dubrovka Volodair reporting. Vanuatu has announced official results to its snap election and negotiations are now underway to form the next government. A bloc made up of former opposition members is emerging and they say they have the numbers to win control of parliament. The election was called after the president's shock dissolution of parliament in August, a state of affairs that former minister Matai Saramaya says left voters desperate for change. So I think uh, that's the perception we're getting from uh, the supporters. I think that people are expecting a new leadership uh, in the new government, that uh, that will depend on the negotiations that are currently in place. Yes, and I know that it's difficult to speak about those negotiations as they're going on, um, but you're in an interesting position having been minister, I understand, in, in the previous government, agricultural yeah. minister. Um, yeah. So how are your allegiances being tested? Um, are you trying to look at what other parties might be able to um, offer you as you try and form potentially a new government? Well, it's not really what they're offering me. For me, it's 
that's not my interest. The interest is uh, forming a, a a good government, a style that will be stable with the interest of the nation at heart. And I think we've we formed a a good uh, group at the moment. Uh, we've got the numbers. Uh, we've got the experience of former prime ministers within camp. So. Yeah, I think we have we have the best uh, composition at the moment. Um, and this election has been quite historical. I understand that the first woman MP in, in over a decade has been uh, voted yes. into parliament. How, how do you yes. feel about that? Having a colleague uh, uh, as a woman uh, for the first I, time? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, in fact, uh, she's a schoolmate of mine. We went to your high school together. So, oh wow! Yeah, good to have. Yeah, and, and we're in the same camp at the moment. So so that's good. I'm looking forward to. Working with her in Parliament, there there was that controversial dissolution, and and people are are looking for more stability in government. Is that something mm. that you hope to deliver as well um, in this ne- next term? Yes, uh, I think uh, that is what the people are expecting, and then uh, this is what we are expected to to deliver, provide a stable government for the next four years. And do you know how so how you might time, do that? Uh, I think compromising on policies, uh, agreeing to disagree. I think we, we've already started working on, on uh, common policies that we can uh, put up together and uh, work our way forward from there. And, and if you do form government, however that might look like, what what are the key issues and the, the key policy changes that you, you'd like to see? Oh, well, I've got, I've got a few of my own that I'm not in a position to talk about the policies yet until the group has agreed to, to a common uh, set of policies. I think it's it's premature for me to talk about it. I don't want to step on other uh, other people's feet. Matai Saramaya there, a member for Loganville, who's been re-elected to his seat. The results of Vanuatu's election also has advocacy groups celebrating as the first female candidate in more than a dozen years has been voted in. Gloria Julia King will become the sixth woman to ever sit in Vanuatu's parliament. Melissa Fare, a women's rights activist and a new Vanuatu student in Australia, says Miss King's election gives young women hope. I probably jumped a little bit. I was I was very, very excited. I was following a, an official um, result. Um, obviously, I was not able to vote. This is probably the second time um, that I was not able to vote. I was eligible to vote, but I couldn't vote because I was in Australia and there was just not enough time to um, get everything my electoral card and uh, time to uh, to vote. But I was following the, the results um, very, very closely. So um, when she was, um, her name came up in the unofficial results, you know, I was, I, I was jumping around a little bit and I was telling all my friends, at, you know, I was in a shed house and they, they couldn't care less what was happening in Vanuatu because they're not from Vanuatu, but I was telling everyone, you know, Ooh, we, we have a woman. So I was, I was very, very excited because, you know, it's it's one woman, but it's it's such a huge, huge thing for, for women in Vanuatu. So I was definitely very, very, very excited about um, having her name there in the unofficial results. And Vanuatu um, has a very large youth population, lots and lots of young people. And she, Julie King even said in an interview uh, recently, you know, she's hoping to inspire younger women to, to like to say like if she can do it everyone can do it anyone can do it is that the message that that sends and is that sort of like the discussions that you're having with people and that's the feeling I guess that that seeing her like you can see it so that you can do it yes absolutely Julia was also the um chair lady I think it's the chair lady of the women in sports commission in Manasa so she's already been working with 
young women all across um, you know, in Vanuatu, and she's had a lot to do, uh, especially with building the capacity of young women and youth, and she's very heavily involved with uh, young people, whether it's in her community, whether it's through sport, whether it's through her business, whether it's through you know community work and social work that she's done. So she's she's had a lot of influence in, in helping young people in Vanuatu and to help them um, get somewhere in life. And I think, you know, in, in, in saying that, she's she's very right in saying that if she can do it, then anyone can do it. And I think uh, her she's already inspiring a lot of people and she's, she's going to inspire um, the young population of Vanuatu and inspiring especially young women to want to get into parliament uh, even more, to get into the politics of Vanuatu. And I know like especially like myself i'm i'm a young woman that's very heavily interested in politics and it's also looking to get into the area of politics and i know a lot of other young women that are, that are wanting to get into the area of politics and are interested in politics and are looking for a way in julia is setting the example and now julia is going to be a role model for a lot of these young women and women in vanuatu who are wanting to get in, in into that space and wanting to and, and now a lot of young people are going to start paying more attention to pol- to the politics of vanuatu and i think that is a good good place to start and now more people are going to pay attention and i think the more people will pay attention the more young people pay attention um, it's going to be good because that means that more questions are going to be asked and young people have questions that they want to ask and the more young people are, uh, start asking questions the more we are going to get answers and, and, and the more you know more things will start coming to light and then more changes we are going to see in, in our country as well because our population is very young and we need our young people to, to start asking questions. That was Melissa Fare speaking there to reporter Jordan Fennell and Vanuatu's parliament will sit on the 4th of November that's when and we'll find out who will form a government and who will become the next prime minister of the country. A group of landowners in Papua New Guinea are worried major mining and resource projects may impact the livelihoods of women in the community. The Baimaru community in Gulf Province wants to implement programs to boost women's empowerment, but they say a string of resource projects in their region could be a setback. Marion Farr reports. Elizabeth Ibai is one of the few women in Baimaru who finished high school. As ladies, we were looking for crabs. We have Delta area. So we normally go looking for crabs, making sago, our stable food back at home, going fishing. After a few years working in Papua New Guinea's capital, Port Moresby, she's returned to her village in Gulf Province, hoping to make a change. Uh, we don't have good uh, education. Our education system there is very low. Elizabeth is part of a small team working to set up women's education and business programs in the Baimaru district. She and a few others recently flew to Australia to meet with NGOs and politicians with the hope of gaining support and advice. Just to mark the voice of our ladies here, if I can get some support just to help my group go in. But when the group was in Australia, they began to learn more about a number of major resource projects near their town. Joseph Ka'au is a community leader from Baimaru and a board member of the community development organisation PNG Trust. We have heard about these projects from what's happening in the news and what people are telling us, but like nobody has officially come and told us about what it is and who is coming on board. One of the projects is a multi-billion dollar gas development known as the Papua LNG Project. It's a joint venture by French company Total Energies, multinational corporation ExxonMobil and the Australian company Santos. 
Final approval for the project is expected at the end of next year, and it's set to become the largest development in PNG in over a decade. The gas field will be located just upstream from where Joseph Ka'au lives. We don't know what it's going to do to our livelihoods. We don't know. We haven't seen the environmental assessment, the impact assessment statement, because they haven't given it to us. They haven't even told us, even if they told us, the documents are in English, and none of us understand the English language correctly. That alone is technical and scientific. So we don't know what's happening. Tatal Energies told the ABC that since 2015, regular information has been given to locals in Baimaru through a series of leaders' meetings and letters. The company says it has a team of community liaison officers from the area to translate the information into local languages. But Joseph Ka'au says he hasn't received any information about the potential environmental impacts. We must be told because that's where we live. That's our livelihood, our life. Tatal Energy says it's taken note of concerns raised by Mr Ka'au and will investigate further. The company says it's also investing in community development and the construction of infrastructure in the area. Another proposed development Mr Ka'au is concerned about is a green hydrogen plant on the Parari River. The $5 billion Australian dollar development is being explored by Australian energy giant Fortescue Future Industries. A spokesperson says the company has identified landowners and maintained continuous contact with the local community since 2021. This has been implemented by our dedicated community relations and village liaison officers. A social mapping and land information report was completed to identify relevant landowners. This project is still in the very early study phase and as it progresses, the community benefits will be discussed with relevant landowners and the local community. FFI will always address any concerns from landowners when they are raised through our grievance mechanism process. The people of Baimaru have not been identified as landowners for this project, but Mr Ka'au is worried that his community could still be affected. By law, they, they tell us that 10 kilometres from the project, you are considered landowner. Many of us are outside of that definition, but if you see the geography, that river puts all the water into where the rest of the people live. Both projects are in their early stages, and it's not yet totally clear what all the environmental consequences will be. But Mr Ka'al says any damage will impact especially on women who rely on the river system to make money and feed their families. Elizabeth Ipai agrees. We as women, back at home, we normally live our life on the river. We normally go scrubbing and fishing. So in other ways, it's going to affect us back at home. The community is calling for more culturally appropriate consultation and involvement in the projects. Marion Farr with that report. Staying in Papua New Guinea in the capital, Port Moresby, a youth unemployment crisis is taking hold as young people from all corners of the country come to the city in search of work. Some young adults have become so desperate they're turning to crime to get by. Carl Evans has this report. At the tail end of 2020, Bernard Kokuri was full of optimism. he just graduated university with a degree in economics and was confident he had what was needed to enter the workforce in Port Moresby. Two and a half years and more than 100 applications later, he's still looking for work and has only had three interviews to show for it. Searching for a job in Port Moresby is a job itself. You know, every day for two years I've been doing it and it cost me a lot of time, effort and 
you know, print papers, series, and buy envelopes, all these little things cost money. And I can't imagine how much I've spent my parents are still supporting me and spending a lot on me for searching for a job. It's like a pressure to me. And the parents and relatives, they are putting more expectations on me, you know, to get a job and change the status of the family. Bernard is one of countless young people searching for work amid a youth unemployment problem gripping the country. So grim is the situation, he's watched some of his friends resort to petty theft and even armed robbery to get by. They feel that there's no future for them. They feel like uh, there's no one cares for them. The family rejected them because they there's too much expectation from the family for them to get a job soon after the, the graduation. But they never did. And then there's rejected, rejection from the family as well. So... He says many employers want up to five years of experience and competition for entry-level jobs is fierce. He also says nepotism is rife. You know, they get, give this priority to their one talks, like their uh, family, relatives, or people whom they know. So even though they are qualified for the position or not, they will still get a job because the recruiter, the HR knows the person. Or the other thing is bravery. People uh, use money and pay the recruiters uh, to get in. New research appears to back his claims. A recent study from PNG's National Research Institute surveyed 318 youths between 14 and 35 in Port Moresby. 68% of respondents said they were unemployed. Here's the author, Julian Melper. They have said that nepotism was one of the obstacles for them to get into job. And there's a lot of issues that they have highlighted due to uh, that becomes obstacle for them to get into job. So some of them said that finance was one of them. They said they went to some offices and the offices, people from the higher level or in position of the positions, they were asking for money or something like under table sort of stuff that could give them the job and all this stuff. There were a lot of it that they have said this. So they, they had to pay to get a job up front, did they? Yeah, yeah this is what they said. Some of them actually went for this, but they were asking for money to get a job. Her paper concludes creating new jobs and limiting urban sprawl is the way to reduce unemployment. However, a lack of job opportunities outside the major centres is pushing more people into the city. She says creating more factories and engaging youth into agriculture could help. If the government or they can give like support them in a sense of um, loan, loan scheme, so that they can support them with a startup capital to buy chemicals or necessary stuff to put more effort into the agriculture because back in the rural areas, our land is very fertile and it naturally produces the quality of the food. So if that can be one of the way forward, then they should boost the interest of the youth to get involved in agriculture to or at least they can get income out of whatever effort that they put it into agriculture. But business leaders say the big issue lies in education. Natasha Austin is a business and IT recruiter. 
She's also the president of the Port Moresby Young Chamber of Commerce. She says employers often tell her the graduates coming out of uni don't have the skills required to operate in the real world. They don't frankly say it to me, but they imply it. And, you know, sometimes it's because maybe it's because the people that I talk to are expatriates. That's why they are very careful when they, they talk to me about it, because maybe there is this perception that if you say something, to a Papua New Guinea, they would take offense. So so they, they are a bit diplomatic when they're talking about these things, but I openly tell them that, you know, it's okay to say that the graduates that you are taking in, you have to spend at least the first six months try to get them to know the basics of, you know, the requirements of working, how to answer the telephone, how to respond, uh, you know, email etiquette. These are things that are not taught at, at school, at, at uni. Job seeker Bernard agrees. Despite all his assignments, he didn't get any on-job experience at school. He says all he can do is keep on trying. It's myself to, you know, be on track and be mindful of what I'm doing, not to lose hope and lose track. Port Moresby job seeker Bernard Kukuri there, ending that report by Kyle Evans. And that's it from Pacific Review. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Thanks for listening and do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from around the Pacific.